0: Well, the world is feeling so much right now fear, loneliness, sickness, some of us, boredom. But one of the emotions that has kind of come to the surface for me is the emotion of interruption. I don't. I swear to you, I do not train my dog to bark when I say the word interruption, I promise. But it was very timely, wasn't it? We just felt a little interrupted this morning. But I felt interrupted in my life, you know, these habits and practices and rhythms of school and activities and work and weekends have been completely interrupted by COVID-19. And you know what, I'm convinced that God has used this to give us a gift. And that gift is the opportunity to hit the reset button on some of those habits and practices and rhythms, not to say that they were unhealthy, but were they really helping us move toward Jesus in our discipleship journey? That's what this series is all about. Before we get back to normal, Uh, We are in the meantime right now and I want you to maximize your meantime to become more like Jesus and to become a disciple of His. So just a kind of a reminder of where we were last week and then we're gonna jump into where we're headed this week. Here's how we define discipleship at Bayview Glen. A disciple is an individual who systematically reorganizes his or her life in order to reflect the character And priorities of Jesus. Let me say that again. A disciple is an individual who systematically reorganizes his or her life in order to reflect the character and priorities of Jesus. The Bible would say it this way, or Jesus would say it this way, that He is the vine and we are the branches, we abide in Him, and then we bear fruit. And that fruit is His character and His priorities. That's what disciples are. But in addition to that, what we're trying to do here is build a trellis upon which we, as the branches, can grow. A trellis is just a, a support structure that a branch or a vine hangs onto so that it can grow and be healthy. And that trellis is for practices that disciples engage in in order to restructure their character and priorities. Now, these practices aren't the end game in and of themselves. Just like a trellis isn't the end game in and of itself. But these practices as a support system help us to grow. And those four practices are taken directly from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 in the description of the early church. The first practice is this, we are discovering a life connected to God and others. Every day discovering a life connected to God and others. In fact, last Sunday, Right after our live stream, I was thinking about an individual who attends Bayview Glen Church. He's 93. He's only been there a couple years. He lives in a senior's home with his wife who has very advanced Alzheimer's and dementia. He cares for her, reads his Bible to her, prays for her. Well, I've been thinking about this ministry partner of ours for the last several weeks because I don't have contact information for him. I wanted to call, I wanted to email, I wanted to check in on him. I get to every Sunday when we gather together as a body, but just haven't been able to track down contact information. Well, last Sunday afternoon, right after our live stream, his granddaughter emailed me and said, hey, Lucas, my grandfather wants to talk to you. Can you give us a number? I gave him my cell phone number right away, and 30 minutes later, I had a 45-minute conversation with a man who was checking in on me to see how I was doing. See how my family was doing, see how my kids were doing. And it brought me so much joy. You see, that is discovering a life connected to others, whether you're nine or 90. This is what we're designed to do as disciples of Jesus. Principle number two, like I said, comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The Bible says that they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So our second principle is this. A disciple is always dedicating himself or herself, or we are dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. Dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. We're not just reading the Bible. We're not just praying, but we are giving ourselves over to the Scriptures, to allow the Scriptures to mold us and make us as part of that trellis that's helping us grow into a person who reflects the character and priorities of Jesus in all of life, dedicating ourselves to God's Word and prayer. Now, if you didn't join us last week, you wouldn't know this, but Sundar Krishnan, a friend of mine, a retired pastor, is coming in the last three weeks of May, and he's going to do a deep dive into that, dedicating ourselves to prayer peace. So today, here's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on dedicating ourselves to God's Word. Now, as I kind of had a conversation with Dave Lewis about what this series was going to be about, we kind of batted around some ideas of what's the lie that creeps into our heart that prevents us from dedicating ourselves to God's word. So I wanna address two lies today, and then I wanna offer you a way to study the Bible that might combat those lies. So here are the two lies. Number one, the Bible is irrelevant. The Bible is irrelevant. That's just a lie, friends. And I'm gonna show you today from John chapter four why the Bible is so extraordinarily relevant right here, right now, today, Sunday, April 26th. What happens when you believe that lie is that you never pick up your Bible. The Bible is is irrelevant, so why would I even pick it up to begin with? But you know, on the other end of that spectrum, now track with me now, because this is really interesting. Dave pointed this out to me that there are those who believe the Bible is so extraordinarily relevant, whatever I pull out of that applies to me right here, right now, today. So I don't really have to do a lot of work. I don't really have to study. The Bible is hyper-relevant. It's easy to understand. And what happens then is that we go to the Bible, and without letting it read us, we just read what we want to read. We do violence to the text. We ascribe a promise to God that he never made. And then when he doesn't live up to the promise, even though he never made the promise, we get disappointed and angry with him and we put our Bible down. I'll just give you one example. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. People quote this all the time. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And the principle there is true. God has good things for you. He has your best in mind. And yet, when we put that on a bumper sticker or on a fridge magnet, and then we think in our heads, I know what God is up to in order to prosper me and not to harm me. God goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I gave that promise to the nation of Israel 2,600 years ago. It was a promise for the Messiah and the new covenant. So yes, it's applicable, but it's it takes work, friends. It takes study, and it takes dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. That's why we say it that way. And so today I want to show you a tool, a helpful kind of tool uh, skill set with which to study the Bible that will help you avoid either one of those extremes, saying the Bible is irrelevant, so I just never pick it up, or the Bible is so easy to understand and hyper-relevant that I do violence to the text, ascribe promises to God that were never His, and then subsequently get angry with him. So today I wanna show you a way to read the Bible that's gonna avoid those two extremes and help you pull out life-giving, hope-inspiring, transformational principles that have been timeless since God inspired people to write them down. The tool I wanna teach you is called REAP, REAP. You can remember it by saying we're going to reap some truth from God's Word. It's there. We're just going to pull it out. And those four letters stand for read, examine, apply, and pray. Read, examine, apply, and pray. Reap. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to reap John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open it up to John chapter 4. John chapter four. Today, I've got my Bible in front of me here. It's the New King James version of the Bible. I usually use the English Standard version of the Bible, but those are in my office at the church, so I've got the New King James in front of me. You might be using NIV or some other translation. That's okay, it's gonna be close enough. So I want you to open to John chapter four. Now, you might notice that I've got a couple of key things in front of me here in order to reap from the scripture. One is the Bible itself. You're gonna need one of those. Second, I've got a journal here where I can write some truth down and some prayer down and actually make some observations, which we'll get to here in a minute. And this this is a really critical piece. Hmm. A little cup of joe. I like that coffee to be so thick, you stick a spoon in there and it just stands right up like that. That's kind of how I like my coffee, especially when it comes to Bible study. John chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 1. And we're going to start by reading it. That's all we're going to do. It's a big chunk of Scripture, and I'm just going to read it. I pray you'll follow along with me. Verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea, departed again to go to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sichar, near the plot, plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to go to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. That's the first step of reaping truth from the Scripture. We just read the passage. Now, I'm not going to read it three times for the sake of time, but typically that's what I would do. I would read it three times and even sometimes read it aloud when I'm alone. It, it, it helps to, you know, hear the passage and hear the text and see it in a different way. We have a sense now of this narrative. It's a conversation in Samaria between Jesus and a woman at a well. So we've completed step one now. Let's move on to step two. What we're going to do is examine the scripture. E, examine the scripture and simply make observations. And as we do that, we're going to write them down. Now listen, before we get there, I want you to know that the question we're asking the text right now is, what does it say? We're not asking What does it mean? We're just writing down what it says. You just make observations. Jesus was in Samaria. There was a woman by a well. Just simple observations. The simpler, the better. Not what does it mean to the original audience? What does it mean to me? But simply, what does it say? So here's what we're going to do. I am gonna write some down here in my journal. Uh, We're gonna make this a little bit fast motion here so you don't have to watch me write them down the whole time, and while I do that, I want you to use that chat feature uh, just on your right there and log in and begin to make your observations and let's all of us together examine the scripture and make as many observations as we possibly can about John chapter four, verses one through 26, ready? Go! was fast. I hope you got some observations written down. I don't know, I got about 25 or so in about, I don't know, eight, 10 minutes. Plenty there, plenty there for us to retrieve some things to apply to our day-to-day life. So what we've done now in order to dedicate ourselves to God's Word is two things. First, we read the passage. Then we examined it and made observations Now let's take some of those observations and apply them to our lives. That's the third step. Read, examine, and apply. Now here's where a lot of people trip up. Rather than doing the real legwork and really studying the scripture, they just grab a principle and stick it on Tuesday afternoon and call it good. That's not really how this works. So let me just help you identify a couple of the places where we really have to do some hard work in studying the scripture. And when we do this hard work, watch how it pays off. Okay, the first word I want you to think of when we apply the scripture is gaps, gaps. There are some gaps that we need to bridge from us to the scripture, remember. This happened thousands of miles away in a different culture. It was written in a different language. It happened 2,000 years ago. There are so many gaps that we have to bridge, but when we do the work of bridging those gaps, watch how wonderful it can be. So there are geographical gaps. We're here in you know Ontario and uh, we aren't living in first century Palestine and kind of how provinces were set up at that time. And so we wouldn't necessarily know that let's say, uh, let's look at, let's look at uh, verse, where are we at here? Verse three, that Jesus left Judea and departed again to go to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Okay, well, I guess, sure. However, think about it. Judea was in the north, that's where Jesus was. Galilee was down in the south, that's where he was headed. And right in the middle of those two areas was Samaria. Now, many Pharisees, rabbis, Sadducees, the very devout Jews would have completely avoided Samaria altogether. They would have taken a roundabout way if they were traveling from Judea in the north down to Galilee in the south. So Jesus, rather than taking that roundabout way, goes right smack dab through the middle of Samaria. Now John tells us that he had to go through Samaria. Now I just told you there were plenty of people that had made this trek that did not go through Samaria. So he did not have to go through Samaria in terms of geography. He had to go through Samaria in terms of calling. Do you see how understanding the geography of the location we're talking about can help enlighten and illuminate the scriptures for us? Jesus, rather than taking the roundabout way around people who he would have had an ethnic disagreement with, at least his ethnicity and their ethnicity, did not get along. He goes right smack through the middle of them. He had to in terms of calling. See, there's geographical gaps. Once we bridge the gap, The scripture gets illuminated. There are cultural gaps. I just mentioned that Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They hated one another. And men and women in that culture didn't speak either. So for Jesus being a Jewish man to speak to a Samaritan woman at a well would have been way outside of everybody's paradigm. He, by his very action, is reminding his fellow Jews and reminding his fellow men that those of another gender or those of another ethnicity are equal with you. He shows care and compassion and tenderness, thus setting an example and thus kind of rebuking cultural norms and mores that were racist and sexist. Wow. We bridged a cultural gap. And again, the scripture is illuminated and comes to life. And finally, there's a time gap, a time gap. We are 2000 years down the road. So we've got to kind of rewind our brain a little bit to what life might've been like in first century Palestine. Not just in Palestine, but even all over the world at that time, the inhabited world anyway. And and it can't just be thinking. We have to do some reading. We have to do some history and research. But when we do, watch what happens. The Bible tells us that this woman is at the well at the sixth hour. Well, the day started at 6 a.m. So if she's at the well at the sixth hour, it's noon. But in that day and age, 2000 years ago, people didn't just go to the well or go to a water source, you know, every hour on the hour or just kind of whenever they need it. They would go first thing in the morning and everybody would be there and they would draw all the water they needed for that day for drinking and bathing and whatever else they needed. Everybody was there first thing in the morning. So why is this woman there at noon? Well, she's ashamed. She doesn't wanna see anybody. She's had five husbands and the person she's living with now is not her husband. That would not have been okay in that time and place. So you see, by bridging that time gap and understanding that uh, people gathered all of their water at the beginning of the day and it was a place to socialize at the beginning of the day By understanding that and bridging that gap, the scripture becomes illuminated. That's the first word, gaps. Second word, context. Context. This one is where a lot of people trip up. We have to understand two types of contexts in order to properly apply the scripture. The first is the macro context. Asking the question, where am I? in God's grand story. Now we've talked about this before, but this is kinda how the Bible goes from start to finish. God creates everything perfect. There's a conflict called sin, and subsequently there's a rising action. That's all the consequences of that sin begin to play out through the course of the Old Testament. The climax of the scripture is the cross and then we begin to see what's called the falling action. That means these, con- these consequences of the conflict of sin begin to get remedied and mended and finally there will be a resolution. That's what Revelation talks about one day when Jesus comes back and his kingdom comes. So we ask ourselves, where are we in God's grand story? Are we in the conflict? Are we in the resolution? Are we at the cross, the rising action, the falling action? And right here in John chapter four, we're just starting to see the tides turn a little bit. We're just starting to see those consequences start to step up over a hill and fall down a hill called remedy, renewal, and redemption. That's where we're at in God's grand story. It's critical, critical to understand that because if you don't, what you're going to do is look at the Old Testament and think it's just a book of rules. Or you're going to read about people in the scripture and think that they're just heroes to model your life after. And yes, there are rules and yes, there are heroes, but that's not the point. In fact, listen to what Sally Lloyd-Jones writes about the scripture. This is so insightful when we're talking about understanding God's grand story. She writes this, Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. Now listen closely. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. I love that quote. It reminds us when we are dedicating ourselves to God's word, we have to see ourselves in the broader context of God's grand story. The Bible isn't rules or heroes. The Bible is a book about God and His story. So where are we in His story? Second, we have to understand the micro context, the micro context. What's going on right here in this book? Well, this is John. He was Jesus' best friend, his only disciple that remained faithful through the crucifixion. John died in his 90s and probably wrote this book in his 80s. And he's writing to us so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. We understand why he's writing and who he's writing to. We understand the time and place and date of writing, the micro context. And once we do that, we can ask a couple of critical questions. Here they are. Number one, what did this text mean to the original audience? What did it mean to the original audience? This is especially critical when it comes to studying the Old Testament, especially critical when it comes to studying the letters in the New Testament. What is this individual saying to the original audience? What does John want his original audience to know? Well, the divide between Jews and Gentiles would have been significant at that time. There would have been an argument, as we just saw, between Jews and Samaritans as to where worship takes place. And John is writing this so that we see Jesus as the redeemer of those arguments, as the answer to those questions. That's what he wants his original audience to know. So what did it mean to the original audience? And then finally, once we've bridged our gaps, once we've asked questions and answered questions of context, both micro and macro, then then we ask the question, what did it mean to the original audience? And now finally, what does it mean to me? Now, here's where we go back to our observations. So I'm gonna pick mine up, and I'm just gonna tell you a couple of the observations that I wrote down as I uh, track through this text. Well, let's see. A Samaritan woman showed up. Jesus was at a well. Jesus was tired. I like that one. I'll tell you why in a minute. Jesus uh, went through Samaria Uh, The Samaritan woman didn't quite get it as they had this conversation. Jesus knew her marital status. Uh, God is seeking worshipers. Uh, Jews and Samaritans disagreed on the place of worship. Uh, The particular mountain, whether in Samaria or in Jerusalem, was not mission critical for worship. Did anybody write down some of those same observations? Those are great observations in the text. Now watch us derive, now that we've asked and answered all those critical questions, derive unbelievably relevant and transforming truth from very simple observation. One, did you notice that Jesus was tired? John tells us he was weary from his journey. Here's my question. Does God get tired? Nope, human beings get tired. So Jesus was not God in a bod, as some people have said. He was not God who displayed himself as a human being. Rather, Jesus took on all the weaknesses of human beings so much so that he even got tired after a long walk. Remember when he was on the cross, one of seven things that Jesus said was, I thirst. God doesn't get thirsty. Human beings get thirsty. So what we have here is Jesus showing us and John showing us that Jesus was both God and man, 100% of both. Jesus got weary, just like you get weary. Jesus got thirsty, just like you get thirsty. Jesus got lonely, just like you get lonely. That's why the uh, author of Hebrews can say, he is a high priest able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses, being tempted in every way and still remaining without sin. Wow, wow, what a truth that is. And we got it just from writing down that Jesus was tired. I like this other observation that uh, the mountain is not mission critical for worship. Remember, Jesus said that, look, it's not that mountain or this mountain that's critical, but true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, worship is not location specific. Now, for those of you who say the Bible is irrelevant, how relevant is that truth today? Here we are in our homes In our beds, on our back porch, some of us scattered across Ontario, even across Canada, across the world, not able to gather together in a central location. And here is our Savior King reminding us that worship is not confined to a place. You don't have to be on a mountain in Samaria. You don't have to be on a mountain in Jerusalem. You don't have to be in a building at Bayview and Steele's. Ah, what a refreshing truth from Jesus in John chapter four saying that worship is not place specific. Let's keep going. I'm just excited. Let's just keep going. Ooh, did you catch that Jesus says these are the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking? How cool is that? That God is coming after you as a worshiper. He is seeking you. He's on the hunt for you. He's not passively standing by with his arms crossed going, well, I hope he figures it out. Or I hope she decides to come after me at some point and when she does, I'll be around. No, he is actively pursuing you, drawing you in to worship. Man, what else? Ooh, he had to go through Samaria. We talked about this one, but that was a matter of calling for Jesus. Jesus was willing to put himself at risk physically. He was willing to put his reputation at risk. He was willing to maybe be ridiculed and get the side eye a little bit so that he could travel through Samaria, culturally not something anyone would expect. It would definitely been frowned upon. And speak to a woman, not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman at a well in Samaria because he cared for the brokenhearted. He cared for those who had been treated unjustly. He cared for sinners and he cares for you. He'll go out of his way for you risk his reputation for you. In fact, the Bible says that he put himself at risk physically, even paid the ultimate price physically for you because he was called to come after you. Wow, wow, that's good truth. And all we did was read, examine, apply, and now we pray. Would you pray with me? God, I am grateful for your word today and grateful in the ways that it comes alive. God, it's kind of an old saying, but um, I think it's especially true today, at least feels especially true that you can read any book you want, but the Bible is the only book that can read you. Thank you for inspiring people to write this down uh, 2000 years ago and more. Thank you that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God teaches to be people who reap wonderful truth from your word. Thank you for this tool that you've given us to be people who are always dedicating ourselves to God's word. In Jesus' name, amen.